Hello, and welcome to 502 Conversations. I'm Brian Kirby, and my guest today is Andy Norman. Dr. Andy Norman is an author and public philosopher. Dr. Andy Norman, how are you doing today? Is it Dr. Norman, Andy, Professor, which do you prefer? Oh, I am fine with Andy, actually. Thank you. I, uh, I prefer that. Um, and I am well today. Thank you for asking. All right. I will give a brief bio on you, and then we will begin. This is the part where I say a lot of good things about you, and you sit there and look awkward <laughs> while I go through it, okay? <laughs> I'm good. Okay. I can do that. <laughs> All right. Andy Norman has a PhD in philosophy from Northwestern University. His research illuminates the evolutionary origins of human reasoning, the norms that make dialogue fruitful, and the workings of the mind's immune system. He champions the emerging science of mental immunity as the antidote to disinformation, propaganda, hate, and division. His work has appeared in Scientific American, Psychology Today, Skeptic, Free Inquiry, and The Humanist. Andy directs the Humanism Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University, is the founder of CIRCE, the Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative, and he is also the award-winning author of Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. And that is what we shall discuss today. All right, Andy Norman, thank you again so much for being here. My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me. Let me start with the first question on everyone's mind. What is mental immunity? Mental immunity. Um, so every, I assume you, you, you know that your body has an immune system. Um, and you probably know why your body has an immune system. Basically, we evolved in an environment full of infectious microbes and had to e evolve resistance to them in order to make it through the evolutionary winnowing process. Well, it turns out our minds have been evolving alongside infectious ideas for millions of years. And they had to evolve immune systems of their own in order to weed out potentially lethal ideas. So it turns out that our minds actually have rather sophisticated defenses that can work astonishingly well under the right circumstances. And they can work very poorly under the wrong circumstances. And in the same way that the science of immunology helped us better understand our body's defenses, this new science that I'm championing I call it cognitive immunology, is helping us understand how the mind wards off um, problematic information. And by better understanding its functioning, I think we can all become better critical thinkers. I like that. I have two questions about that. And one is about the immune system, and one is about um, critical thinking, because you mentioned it. So I guess let's start there, because people may wonder, you know, how does mental immunity differ from skepticism combined with critical thinking? And so here I mean methodolo I'm sorry, methodological skepticism, that is evaluating evidence for a claim before making decision. I don't mean just skepticism that nothing exists. So when we talk about skepticism, that's what we're talking about, not this philosophical skepticism that we can't know anything. So skepticism, look at the evidence before you make a decision. Critical thinking is the ability to evaluate that evidence. All right. So okay. how would you say that differs from mental immunity? Um, the to a, to a significant degree, there are different ways of talking about the same thing. Um, but one th thing that the science of mental immunity is showing us is that there's a whole lot more to thinking well than just thinking critically. 
So we think of critical thinking as a largely deliberate or conscious process that occurs once you recognize, once, once questions have arisen and you recognize the need to resolve some issue. Um, all of that's well and good, but we need to better understand why certain questions surface in conscious awareness, uh, why they surface certain issues as, as worthy of deliberate conscious attention, and why others don't. So there are subconscious and unconscious processes that contribute to our mind's defenses. And uh, for about a century, we've been talking about um, thinking as a as a purely conscious process and that attending to the relevant, by providing the relevant skills, that that's enough to protect people from all the dangerous kinds of information out there, dangerous and wrongheaded. But it turns out that you, you need to do more. You need to educate the sense, the sensibilities and the habits of mind that underlie critical thinking in order to make it fully effective. So, so in a way, we're talking about the same thing, it's just that the lens of cognitive immunology gives us a wider view of what's involved so that we can pay attention to some of the things we've been neglecting for many decades. All right, let me see if I can steel man this back to you so I make sure I understand it. So mental yeah. immunity is actually the initial response that would come before evaluation and critical thinking. It would be the recognition that, oops, there's a problem here. And then that recognition is an incredibly important step. And then how do we deal with that? Is that? Um, yes, almost. I, I guess I would say that mental immunity is both, both the initial, sometimes subconscious recognition of the problem, and then the subsequent conscious um, skeptical evaluation. So uh, I'm, I'm perfectly, I'm very happy to ally myself with critical thinkers and skeptics, the way you have defined those terms. Um, and I think uh, you've had Melanie uh, Tressa King. She's a colleague on your show. Um, you know, she's uh, uh, runs a wonderful website for critical thinkers called Thinking Is Power. Oh, hold on one second. I yeah. actually my mug of coffee here today. A little uh -huh. cross promotion because she is a member of Cersei as well. <laughs> Thinking is, is Power. So yes, she yes. has been on the show. Sorry, go on. I just thought. <laughs> Melanie's great, um, and. Uh, so we, we, we have some wonderful conversations, Melanie and I, about how exactly critical thinking relates to mental immunity cultivation. Um, I actually think that there's a whole lot more to mental immunity cultivation than just teaching critical thinking, but that critical thinking is a worthy, uh, worthy project. Imparting critical thinking skills is a worthy project. It just needs to be expanded so that we cover some of the vulnerabilities that uh, have traditionally been overlooked. Now I want to talk about, go back to the immune system, because you mentioned the body's immune system, immune system and evolution. And when I'm thinking about mental immunity as you describe it, I want to compare the body's immune system to a mental immune system. And I know I'll say up front so that some people have over or underactive immune systems, but all things being equal, right? Our health system, our health immune system evolved to identify, reject, and eliminate invaders like viruses, bacteria, parasites, you know, fight infections and so on to help with survival. But mm -hmm. my question is, it seemed to me, we're fighting an uphill battle with our minds here because, and you are a cognitive uh, immunologist and a philosopher, so you can clear this up for me. But didn't our cognitive abilities, our minds evolve 
exactly the opposite, not to parse good from bad, I'm sorry, not to parse good from bad, but to accept authoritative statements of seeming knowledge. And so, I mean, we're kind mm -hmm. of taught not to question authority from birth to higher education. And our minds seem to grasp that as a survival mechanism from our parents advising us, don't touch the stove, it's hot. Don't swim after eating. Sit up straight, eat your vegetables, brush your teeth, do your homework, <laughs> right? Don't run out in the street. So right from birth, we see this all-powerful figure that tells us what yeah. to think and do. Then we get to school, right? Our teachers become the all-powerful authoritative figure. We really don't question them, right? Earth revolves around the sun, two plus two equals four, and so on. We don't question that. And then in our social circles, right? So my parents may be religious, so I am too. They were liberal, so I am. They were conservative, so I am. So after decades of all that, it seems, it doesn't seem odd to me, I should say, that we need to learn to think and evaluate claims. Yeah, I mean, I think the deep philosophical question you're raising is, you know, what do we really mean by a good idea uh, and, and, and bad idea? So um, one way to interpret goodness and badness of ideas has to do with their usefulness or their survival conduciveness. Okay, so don't touch the stove, it's hot. Conducive don't to touch the stove, it's hot would, would be a good idea um, because it's useful, right? Oh, okay. Um, you know, don't, um, cliffs are dangerous is a good idea also because it's true, right? Um, tr cliffs with yeah. uh, long. Um, but obey your parents and believe the things around the same things the people around you believe. Those would also have been adaptive in our evolutionary past because being able to get along with your fellow tribesmen and tribeswomen was an, an absolutely pivotal um, feature in our evolutionary past. So if you couldn't align your beliefs sufficiently, with those who you depend on for your survival, then you were likely to be exiled. And so there's a very strong tendency to conformity, belief conformity, uh, kind of evolutionarily instilled within us. And obedience to authority is also a very useful policy when it comes to survival, even if it often leads us away from truth, which is another kind of goodness worth striving for. Then at some point we have to break out of that obedience and start thinking. But yeah. we aren't really trained to, right? We don't challenge our teachers. We don't, I mean, you challenge your parents through the teenage years, right? When you develop your own identity. But we, you know, we don't, and when I say challenge our teachers, I don't mean just arguing or accusing. I, I mean, you know, a thought out request for clarification, right? So like if you're presented with an idea, like when I was in graduate school, you know, the implicit association test came up, right? Um, yes. Um, Gardner's eight intelligences, learning styles, things like that, that were put forward, but then when you think about them and you want to challenge and look into the research, you know, that's a good thing to do. You don't just blindly accept those. But, oh, go ahead. No, that, that, that's what, and I love the way you, you clarified by saying that, you know, challenges are, are, turn out to be a really important element of thinking, but it's usually, it's not often a good idea to to sort of blatantly or openly challenge a teacher. Um, but so a gentle clarifying question is, is often a very good strategy for a student, but it's also a wonderful strategy for thinkers generally. Um, one of the things uh, my hero Socrates um, has taught millions of people is that the art of asking good clarifying questions can really make you a better thinker. So um, it's important to challenge bunk 
it's important to challenge bullshit. But long before you get to the point where you're challenging in the sense of deliberately contradicting something, it usually almost it almost always makes sense to simply ask non-threatening, clarifying questions so that things become clearer. And if the idea is genuinely worth um, rejecting, the clarifying question will usually do the lion's share of, of revealing it to be the kind of idea you should let go of. Um, if you clarify something sufficiently, usually you don't have to do anything else to refute the thing. It just kind of refutes itself once it's sufficiently clarified. That's the, that's the lesson of the famous Socratic method. I'm a huge fan of it because um, it's such a powerful way to help people change their minds and let go of bad ideas. I'll come back to that uh, self-refutation and a challenge refuting an idea. Do you have a short example? Yeah. Um, well, let me think. I, I can tr try to construct one. Um, yeah, construct one. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so I, I once uh, met a blues musician who whose music just captivated me. So I invited him out for a beer. And about half half an hour into our conversation, it became clear he was an anti-vaxxer, that he, he was really angry at the government and Anthony Fauci and President Biden for um, trying to vaccinate against COVID. But I knew that if I, if I just called him out on this, that the, the conversation would quickly become acrimonious quick, and that he would probably just walk away. So instead I just said, wow, you know, tell me more. Um, I, I hadn't heard this about Fauci. Tell me more about, uh, about how you came to this realization. And I just, by getting, by, by being an attentive listener, by simply asking him to spell out his own beliefs, I gave him an opportunity to hear himself think. And I don't know that that one conversation changed his mind. It probably didn't, but it created an opening, I think, where he could begin to hear some of the logical problems in his own worldview, where he could begin to feel and see the tensions and the contradictions in his own worldview. Um, I think that's a really effective way to help people become more capable and independent critical thinkers, is to simply be a really good listener, uh, ask clarifying questions, and just giving them a chance to elaborate to the point where they're starting to see the problems for themselves. Does that make sense? It does. And actually, it's a great story because it's current and it fits into your book title too, Mental Immunity. Um, I can't remember the full subtitle, so Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites. So that person had an infectious idea and he was trying to spread it, not necessarily directly. We don't intend to spread infections, but by, you know, he was spreading his infectious idea to you. You could have been susceptible to that, all right? So the spreading of the infectious idea, then there's the parasite that actually takes hold. So what is the mind parasite? Because you talk about mind parasites. What is a mind? We have the infectious idea now. What's the mind parasite? I think they're one and the same thing. Um, okay. I think, I think that in a very real and literal sense, bad ideas of all kinds are mind parasites. So every misleading or, or sufficiently harmful or false or misled uh, idea 
is in, in a, is a is something that requires a host, same way a parasite does, and it requires a host mind. It can actually um, hijack that mind and get it to spread spread it to other minds. Um, as even you know, as uh, evangelical ideas can do to a evangelist. Um, but insofar as idea, an idea is bad, it usually harms its host as well. And so these are the features of, of parasites. They hitch rides on hosts, they harm those hosts, and sometimes uh, get those hosts to spread them to others. Bad ideas fit, check all the boxes for as mind parasites. And I'm, I'd like to encourage people to think of, of bad ideas as mind bugs to insist that we're all susceptible to them. And in fact, everybody harbors some. And we have to get used to this idea to become more humble and more capable thinkers. All right, let me play a little devil's advocate here. All right, so please. you probably get this, so please respond to it. And I'll, you know, it's not me speaking, I'm playing an advocate here, devil's advocate, sorry. All good. But although I can see this question. so. Isn't what one person calls a mind parasite another person's moral framework or guiding principles? I mean, so <clears throat> mind parasites, good or bad ideas and values are merely subjective, right? Somebody might say that, or let me put it another way. I've already accepted a framework that provides mental immunity and separates good from bad ideas. That's why I'm a Christian or a Muslim. That's why I'm a Democrat. That's why I'm a conservative. Or I've heard this, I've, that's why I'm a critical race theorist. I view everything through a critical race theory lens. Or that's why I'm a white supremacist. I have a, a framework that helps me separate all good from bad ideas already. So you're, you're asking me to question my core beliefs. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, so it's, there, there are several insights in what you just said. Let me flag a couple of them. One is that we rely on the beliefs that are already on board to determine the goodness or badness of the next piece of information that comes in. So if I fall into a conspiracist mindset and new information or evidence arrives that the conspiracy theory is bunk, I'm probably going to regard it with skepticism, maybe reject the really, truly reliable evidence to protect my beliefs. So everybody's mental immune system works that way. And that makes us all susceptible to what psychologists call confirmation bias or motivated reasoning. Uh, basically, it's a way to reason to defend the, the beliefs you already have. And because we're all particularly susceptible to that, we all need to learn to be open to rethinking even our core beliefs, which means, let, which means not identifying with them. Because if you identify with the belief and somebody challenges it, it feels like a personal attack. It's an attack on you. So one, one thing that the best thinkers do is they, is they separate their beliefs from their sense of self and, and treat their beliefs, I like to say, as house guests that might just wear out their welcome at any point. It's like, yeah, okay, these beliefs about human rights have served me well, but hey, if I get too absolutist about my rights, I can actually start thinking poorly. I can actually start making mistakes. So yeah, I'm going to keep these idea, this idea, these ideas of human rights around. They're house guests that are welcome to stick around, but I'm not going to treat them as so sacred that they're going to prevent me from 
from thinking, from rethinking things that need rethinking. Does that make sense? It does. But people do identify with their um, uh, affiliations, yeah. I should say. And that, um, yeah, and, and of course, and our tribal affiliations are, are some of the deepest, most powerful impulses we have. So um, the, the need to fit in with our tribe and to, and to therefore, and to be a member of good standing. And if that means holding on to certain beliefs, most of us have a very strong impulse to do that. What we do know um, from over half a century of, of cognitive science research is that if we let our tribal instincts rule our thinking, our thinking can become skewed very fast. So it turns out there are better ways to think than the ones instilled in us by our by natural selection. So natural selection gets us to think in a very tribal, defensive way. But you can't become a good scientist if you cling to those ways of thinking. You have to unlearn some of those evolved tendencies. You have to counteract some of those evolved tendencies to become a good scientist. You have to counteract those same tendencies to become a good philosopher. And I think you need to counteract those tendencies to become a fair-minded thinker in any domain. I think what you just said about uh, wanting to maintain the tribal affiliation, maybe not speaking out if you see a problem because you don't want to risk being uh, criticized or booted from the tribe. Yeah. And I do view myself, well, I try to be a skeptic and a critical thinker based on what I said. But let's not forget that there have been conflicts within skepticism itself, right? Especially mm -hmm. currently, uh, there are a lot of things that go on and you're not a good skeptic if you don't do this or that. Um, but if I say, I, you know, I, my, more, my framework is to... Um, evaluate evidence before making a decision and learn how to evaluate that evidence. Is that another dogma at its base? Am I in trouble there as well? That's, all, that's, that's a great question. Um, so it's certainly true that if you belong to a group that values skeptical inquiry or that values um, evidence, then it becomes easier to follow that rule because it's one of the rules that your tribe believes in. And you know, I've I've been hanging around academic communities, philosophers, scientists for a lot of years, and that so I feel I get a sense of belonging by adopting these more skeptical, uh, critical attitudes. So that makes it relatively easy for me to practice what I preach. But not everybody's luck, fortunate enough to you know be able to. Um, belong to such communities. I think one of the most important tasks of the next 50 years is to build communities of inquiry that everyone can belong to. Um, I mean, there's no reason why a religious congregation can't come together around the value of open inquiry rather than around a set of dogmatic beliefs. In fact, there are some religious faiths out there that take the ideal of honest inquiry, honest collaborative inquiry very seriously. And that can become a way you can satisfy your need to belong that way rather than by belonging to or joining a dogmatic cult-like belief system. All right, let me get a little personal here then. 
So I just said, is my skepticism another dogma? So I need to question even that sometimes, right? So when have you, I, I gotta imagine that you've run up against a bad idea in your circle that you had to challenge and you had to stop and think, do I wanna go down this road, right? I don't know if you can give a, a fake personal example of, but when something, you had to think, say, whoa, I've been wrong about this. There's a problem here. Yeah, um, well, I, 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 there have been real, real examples of that, uh, for sure. I mean, I grew up in a largely liberal, progressive family. And so it's been hard for me to unlearn some of the more problematic elements of contemporary sort of woke ideology. Um, and can you there, define that for me? Woke ideology? Yeah. I mean, I mean you're, is, what we're talking about here, so, you know, it's... Yeah, the, ter the term's a bit contested and so on. Look, um, I'm all for awakenings. <laughs> Um, and to the extent that we all need to be more aware of racism and sexism and homophobia, um, becoming more woke to those problems is a okay. good thing. Um, but there's also a strain of progressive activism that becomes almost dogmatically fixated on a kind of ideological purity and in 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 that and those strains to me look more and more fanatical more and more like a closed-minded religious um doctrine so it i actually had to learn the hard way that some of my progressive allies are actually morphing into very illiberal forces um so i, I i've actually had to I've, I've actually lost some some friends and some allies as a result of uh, schisms within the progressive left. Um, but my, my commitment to fair-minded thinking requires me to kind of to distance myself from folks like this while continuing to approach them with as much respect as I can so that dialogue can work its magic on them and help, help them to grow as well. I don't think I've fully answered your, your your really hard question about whether is is skepticism or critical thinking or the or, or beliefs about mental immunity could those become a, doct, a dogmatic religion of their own? Is it just another belief system? I would argue no. It's not just another belief system. Um, not all belief systems are created equal. Some work well to promote human flourishing. Others don't. And it's easy to think of examples, right? I mean, think about the most god-awful white supremacist ideology you can imagine, and it's pretty clear that, that that's antithetical to human flourishing. And I also think that there are other belief systems that do a remarkably, I mean, think about um, Enlightenment humanism, which spread the idea of human rights through Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries. This promoted human welfare in ways that are, were shockingly effective. That was an ideology or uh, that, that was a belief system that is in many ways, um, that is a much more conducive to human well-being than others. So it's really important that we not treat all belief systems as, as equal or assume that it's all just subjective because there really are objective differences 
between beliefs and the consequences they have for us. I'm going to come back to that because that's a, what you just said, not all belief systems are equal. I mean, you get in trouble right there at the university level, right? So I'll come back to that. But yeah. I want to, before I do that, um, that you've lost colleagues or allies over uh, uh, some disputes, I can imagine that your colleagues and allies are reasonable people and that the discussions weren't throwdown arguments. They were back and forth, you know, this and that, um, well thought out, right? So this, is a, this brings me right back to your Socratic um, reasons refute, all right? But they actually don't always. So reasons aren't always persuasive regarding a belief, and you went through it yourself. Okay, um, so we'll take two examples. Like a Republican could state that um, Democrats want a welfare state, but the Democrat could point out, well, red states get more in welfare benefits. That's not going to convince a Republican, right? Or a Democrat could say that Republicans are anti-science, but the Republican could point out, well, you know what? The last few Republican administrations have funded science more than the last few Democrat administrations. All right? So... Is that true? It is. As far as I know, it's true. I can send you the source on that, but, um, you know, it's a little bit, but yes. Um, I'm not saying a Republican would point that out, but I'm just saying you can point out things that are reasons, but they're not going to be persuasive. So I can imagine you pointed out a lot of things in these conversations with your colleagues and allies, you still parted, yeah. all right? And you guys are smart people. So reasons yeah. refute bad ideas, but do they? I think sometimes. So, so there's, a, there's a way of talking about this that's going around saying, why facts don't change our minds. Or in fact, there, there's a famous article in The Atlantic recently about why facts don't change our minds. I actually think that that's an overstatement of the case. Now, it's certainly true that facts and reasons often fail to change people's minds about fundamental issues. But let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that facts never change minds, because there are perfectly ordinary everyday case examples. So take the stakes down. So suppose you and I want to get to the other side of the, the river. We're driving in a car together. You want to go across bridge A, but I notice that, that traffic is congested on bridge A. So I mentioned this fact to you and you go, oh, okay. And you change your mind and you steer us towards bridge B and we get where we're going. A fact recorded say by Google Maps or something changed my mind, changed your mind, changed our collective behavior and led to a better outcome. That kind of ordinary everyday facts changing minds happens so often, we often forget just how ubiquitous it is. It's so big a part of human nature that we can almost lose sight of it and, and the almost miraculously wonderful effects it can have. So it's, it's true that we can become ideologically fixated and refuse to revise our core, core ideological beliefs. And those examples stand out for us in ways that cause us to forget the backdrop and the backdrop is one where facts often change people's minds. What we need to do is get better at changing our minds, even when the stakes are high, even when it's our core beliefs that are at stake. And there's no question at all that people can vary along this dimension. Um, moving from the dark ages to the enlightenment, there was 
a dramatic cultural shift in how open people were to rethinking poor things. So human nature, it's, it's tempting to think human beings are just inherently dogmatic, inherently closed-minded, inherently incapable of closing their mind, of changing their minds. But if you look at history, there have been periods of relative, collective, relative closed-mindedness and collective open-mindedness that shook those up. And there's no reason why we can't bring about such a enlightenment again. Let me follow up with, um, sometimes when I've been presented with opposing information, I reject it immediately with a gut reaction and it, you know, you actually feel an emotional reaction. So you can get pretty agitated, right? But then after, if I stew on it, and maybe like a week or two later, I'll start to go, you know what? I mean, it could be even longer than that, okay? And then you finally have to, you know, you think it through for yourself, separate from the encounter. And you realize, yes. oh, you know what? I was wrong. So as a professor and a teacher at a university, I can only imagine that you've rubbed some students the wrong way, but then like a couple years later, you get an email that says, you know what, professor? You've changed my life or something. All right, because you've taught for a long time. It's got to have happened, right? And with yeah, your colleagues I, 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 and allies, I'm sorry, with your colleagues and allies that you had these disputes, has anyone come back and said, you know what, I'm, you've got me thinking in a new way now? Uh, I guess there's two questions there. Oh, great. Yeah, well, yeah, so when you teach philosophy, you are charged with asking deep, sometimes troubling or, or kind of disturbing questions, you know, about the nature of justice and whether we really have souls and things like this. And those can be hard topics to grapple with when you're in, when you're in your early 20s or when you're 18, coming straight out of high school. Um, some kids rise to the challenge and love it from the get-go. Others find it very uncomfortable. But over time, those questions sink in and make them come to realizations sometimes years down the road. So yes, I have received messages from former students of that kind. Um, with regard to the sort of the colleagues and and disputes with among both political and academic allies, uh, I'll mention one where a, a very good friend who who's an LGBT activist and, and a trans rights activist was defending the critiques of J.K. Rowling. You, you probably know that J.K. Rowling tweeted a couple things that got her into a lot of hot water with trans rights activists. Um, a very complex controversy erupted that has people of goodwill coming down on both sides. And this extremely bright kid, student that I work closely with, who's actually way smarter than I am, thought Rowling was very much in the wrong, whereas I saw it differently. Um, and we, we managed to disagree in ways that got us each feeling defensive but because there, our respect runs deep, because our trust runs deep, because we were willing to listen to each other and learn from one another, we got past that and our friendship deepened even further. And I've come to realize that there's more nuance to the issue than I had realized at first. And I like to think he came to the same realization. Let's go back to your statement. Um, not all beliefs are equal. All right. Yeah. And this brings me right into the book. It's a, it's a big book. It's interesting. Everyone should read it. Um, there's a lot of information in there. So I'm just picking, you know, we talked about mind parasites, mental immunity. There's much more in it about how to work through this. But I want to zoom in here because you mentioned not all beliefs are equal. You know, 
That can get you in trouble if you mention that in a school setting right now. And you actually write about what you consider to be six mental immune disruptors, and that is uh, disruptors that impede good thinking and allow bad ideas to take hold. And so I want to talk to you about them. But as I just said, I mean, the six disruptors you list, it kind of reads like a checklist that might have a foothold in higher education and education in general, or a secret handshake. I mean, maybe that's not fair, okay? But maybe in the quest to be uber tolerant, you know, one can slip into these self-destructive relativism, relativism and postmodernism things like, I mean, we can maybe talk about that later. Uh, do you want to comment? But I was going to run through those six ideas. That's fine. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, I think much sort of postmodern relativism is motivated by the, a, a, a desire to be tolerant of other points of view. And there's certainly something to admire about tolerance for, for other points of view. In fact, a certain amount of tolerance for other points of view is needed just to have a respectful conversation to start with. But that doesn't mean we have to accept or so I, I like to say that every person deserves respect, but not every idea deserves respect. Um, I'm going to do my best in conversation with anybody to treat them with respect, to try to build this sort of connection that allows us to, to learn from one another. Um, but if I hold to the idea that all beliefs are equal, then there's never any good reason to trade in one belief for another. Then we stop learning. We stop advancing. Um, so to some degree, the idea that all worldviews need to be respected has become orthodoxy in higher education. I would challenge that orthodoxy. I think it's dysfunctional. And that's part of what I mean when I call an idea uh, a, an immune, a mental immune disruptor. It's something that prevents us from thinking clearly and deeply. And I think that takes us back to where you said you wanted to go. And I must say, it doesn't take much to come up if someone says all ideas, all beliefs are equal, it doesn't come up with much to say, really, you think that um, you want to live in a society where women can't get educated? You think that's an equal belief? They will, Perfect. well, no, I didn't mean that. I mean, that's too extreme. Well, or I've always also thrown back, well, if you think all ideas are equal and you accept that, well, my belief is that all ideas are not equal. So you have to accept that idea, which refutes yours, <laughs> right? They, anyway. Very good. Very good. Yes. But, all right, let's talk about these six mental immune disruptors that have taken hold uh, everywhere, all right? So the first disruptor, beliefs are private and no one else is concerned. All right, the second disruptor, we have a right to believe what we like. The third one, this is a biggie, values are subjective relative to um, a fundamental arbitrary set of preferences, all right? Uh, four, we have no standing to criticize other people's judgments. Basic value commitments are not subject to rational assessment and the last one is questioning a person's core commitment is fundamentally intolerant, mean-spirited, offensive, or own kind. So numbers four and six, you know, we have no standing to criticize others and questioning a person's commitments is fundamentally intolerant. You'd never get anything done. <laughs> so if you, if you didn't do those things. Right, exactly. So yes. those are six disruptors to higher thinking skills of a lot of people in university and academy now. So. I don't know if you want to talk about all those at once or pick and choose a couple of them, but I can see yeah. you getting a huge backlash for listing those. Yeah, I mean, the, for the most part, uh, the academics I've talked to about this have been very supportive. They, they recognize that these ideas don't promote, that when these ideas take hold, people become um, less prone to really thinking things through and, and learning and unlearning things. Um, 
I, th I think there's a, well, so I've, I've been part of several university communities over the years. And the ones I've been privileged to be a part of are for the most part, take the ideal of, of rational inquiry and critical thinking very seriously. They, they don't like the idea that nobody has standing to criticize anybody else. They don't like the idea that you know, all, all ideas are equally good. But there are pockets in higher education where those ideas, I think, really prevail and enforce a kind of orthodoxy. And yeah, I'm likely to get in hot water with some of those folks, but that's a conversation I really want to have because I think um, it's we're not doing our students and any favors by teaching them those things. In fact, to some degree, we're disabling them, um, preventing them from realizing their full potential. Like if you teach people that all values are subjective, and if you mean by that, the values are ultimately arbitrary, then anybody's allowed to choose whatever values they want. And who's to say? If you teach people to think that way, they're not gonna learn to think and refine the values they have. Their, their moral progress will be stunted. So all six of these, what I call mental immune disruptors, they can take hold of the mind and provide excuses for opting out of the hard conversations, opting out of, of troubling value inquiry, the kind of inquiry that really makes you rethink your core values. But when we, when we buy into those ideas, as our culture, I think, has to a large degree, and not just the culture of, of, you know, of higher education, I think our culture more broadly is bought into these ideas, we become less reflective. We become less, uh, become more susceptible, which is to say less immune to bad ideas. Let's take this a step further then. So, you know, we're summarizing your book here in like an hour, but so now we've got the mental immune disruptors. Um, so what steps can we take to vaccinate our minds to make up some mental immunity tools or, or you know, what, what do you have for us? And I must say, it is work like exercise, right? You, have, you exercise to stay healthy. If you want to develop mental immunity, it's going to take a little bit of work. So what, what, what do you have in your mental immunity toolbox? Quite right. So um, I'll mention a few of my favorites. Uh, one of them is to try to develop a healthy attitude towards, towards doubt. So many of us find doubt uncomfortable. We prefer certainty to doubt. But one of the things we're learning is that doubts are the mind's antibodies. The mind generates them in order to flag problematic information so that we don't rely on it um, to our detriment. So learning to appreciate our doubts, listen to our doubts, respect our doubts, give voice to our doubts, that's one of the most important things you can do to build your mental immunity. I like to say that if you listen to that little voice in the back of your head that says, something's not quite right here, listen to it carefully, give it your full attention, and then help it make its qualms explicit by formulating that doubt as a question. If you can put your doubts into the words, and, and those words come out in the form of a question, particularly a clarifying question, you've done a marvelous thing that can help you learn from from the uncertainty in the situation and become better adapted to the world. So, so rule number one would be listen to your doubts. 
um, they're our friends, not our enemies. Second uh, rule I like to say is never use reasons as weapons. They're not tools for bludgeoning your opponents into silence or, or, or coercing other people into believing what you believe. They're, they're pointers you can use to gently invite others to pay attention to things that you think are relevant. So when I use reasons, I'm trying to enter into a, a space where I invite somebody else to, pay, to notice something that I think is relevant and to take account of it to the whatever extent they think is, is reasonable. Um, that's the way reasons I think should be used. They should be um, thought of as tools for collaborative engagement, not for competitive, uh, not for defeating others in, in debate. So, I, so I'm a big fan of dialogue over debate to promote healthy mental immune function um, and good thinking. Uh, let me mention one more. Um, I would say that um, it's really important to learn to unlearn. We, we tend to think of learning as just adding to the mind's knowledge stockpile. But a really big part of learning and an underemphasized one is that we sometimes need to notice that, oh my goodness, this thing I've always believed, that can't possibly be right. I have to replace that with something. I have, I have to let go of that. So unlearning is a key part of learning. So there are about a dozen of little rules like this that I offer in the book, but there's a there's three for to illustrate the set. I'd like to follow up on that unlearning thing because it is so difficult. Because when that light bulb goes on, there can be a physical reaction. I mean, you can have your world. I mean, you can become very anxious when you're uh, when you realize you need to unlearn something. Um, you know, I think it, I, I really mentioned that twice it. now. I guess. <laughs> Sorry. I appreciate your sharing that with me, Brian. Um, I think that's true. I also think that over time, it becomes less scary. Um, so maybe the first time you're asked to rethink core ideas, it feels like you might let go of that belief and fall forever. You might be cast into a bottomless void or be cut loose from all of your moral or or communal moorings. I think it's easy to feel that way at first, but the more you get, the more you practice the art of questioning your core ideas and trying on alternatives for size, the more you get used to that, the, the more you realize there's very little risk. It's psychologically scary, but we can grow accustomed. We, we can acclimate ourselves to the process of questioning core ideas, and it's and it turns out to be freeing, not terrifying, once you get the hang of it. Well, I kind of danced around it, so let me give you a personal example, because I asked you for them. So the biggest thing for me was I was a Christian. Um, you know, I didn't go to church out of after I got out of college, but I still, you know, believed in Jesus, and I, I don't doubt the historical Jesus, um, but I believed in the stories and that. Um, but then you learn there are a lot of saviors, right? Every culture has a creation myth. Every culture has a flood myth. Um, when you start to learn those things, it, it starts to upset the apple cart. And then when you, you know, come to the realization that probably this is another story, I mean, I had a physical reaction. I won't deny it. It was, yeah. I mean, like, 
you know, it was distressing, I guess I should say. And, and you know, it's, I, I, I always love talk, talking to people who can share stories like that because my own upbringing was quite different. And um, I, I never... I never really got super attached to a set of beliefs that I was then asked to rethink. I've got semi-attached to ideas that I've then had to rethink, but it never really felt ex like an existential threat. I've never been in a situation where letting go of a belief felt like an existential danger to me. And I've got a ton of respect for people who face up to that kind of fear and see their way through to the kind of the more to the freer way of thinking on the other side. So hats off to you, Brian, for, for going there and surviving it and being living proof that uh, you can thrive on the other side. Well, I think Which, it did come through dialogue, though. Nobody reasoned me out of it. It was listening to other people and reading. And so, and I must say, I didn't let it go as, so much as you just couldn't hold on to it anymore. I don't know if that makes sense. But it's yeah. not something I said, I have to let go of this. It was like, it just kind of had to vaporize away because it just didn't hold, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, hand, it wasn't, I couldn't hold it anymore. Yeah, um, th there's a, a really interesting debate in the psychology of belief about whether believing is even voluntary or whether it's involuntary. Um, in other words- yeah, I can see that, we, absolutely. Do we choose our beliefs or do they choose us, so to speak? Um, I think to a certain, to a significant extent, beliefs are involuntary. You know, given a certain background, a certain experience set, beliefs just happen to us. We just find ourselves with them or without them. Like I just find myself without belief in God. I don't deliberately try not to believe in God. It's just that oh, I right. can't yeah. believe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but I also think that we can do things, deliberate things, that make us more or less prone to believe things. So if I rely continuously on the assumption that God exists, then I'm over time, I'm more likely to believe it. If I'm less like if when I rely on that assumption less frequently over time, the belief can wane slowly. I, th I think belief works something like that. But again, as I say, it's an open topic of, of inquiry. Okay. Um I think this conversation has been great. I don't know if we hit as much on the book as you wanted, as we could have, though, because it's, I mean, is there something I've missed that you really want to bring out here? I think we talked about parasites, infectious ideas, how the mental immune system, um, reasons, persuasion. Yeah, no, you've done a marvelous job of, of drilling into some of the meatier ideas in the book, and I appreciate that. Um, I, I'll, I'll mention just uh, uh, a project that's emerged in the wake of my book's publication that I think can help people who are really interested in that practical question of you know, how do I build my mental immunity? How do, how do I become less susceptible to all the dangerous ideologies and misconceptions and conspiracy theories that are out there? Well, it turns out there's a bunch of things we can do. I mentioned three a little while back, but um, if you go point your browser to the Mental Immunity Project, uh, org, you'll find uh, a, a wonderful set of resources for building up your thinking skills and becoming a savvier consumer of, of information. Uh, I think we've created some of, the, some of the best resources out there for leveling up your thinking skills. And uh, we hope that uh, people will, will find it, share it, um, share some of these techniques and strategies with their students. With their, with their children, with their friends, 
and that over time our culture as a whole will become more herd immune <laughs> to sort of dangerous ideologies. Have you thought about developing it or the book for high school students so that it could be an elective course someplace? I, I don't want to be hard, too hard on teachers here because I think I was earlier. They, in the public school system, they are restricted by curriculum. They have so many hours in the day. They've got a lot of stuff to do. Um, yeah. So bringing in thoughtful reflection <laughs> is, is, you know, I'm not sure they all have time for that. But maybe in high school when you get to take some electives, this could yeah. be an example of that. I, we would love to see that happen. And in fact, our mental immunity project that I mentioned, uh, we're looking for, for partners who can help us uh, pilot these programs in schools. We're talking to some already. Uh, we've tried them at community colleges. We've tried them at universities. We've tried them at civics groups. We've tried them at Air Force bases. Um, and the, the conclusion, I mean, the response has been really positive. Uh, and we'd love to see more people who recognize the need for this kind of thing invite us to come in and give workshops, for example. Um, we think it's a, it can be really transformative ways to um, help kids become savvier citizens of the digital age. And let's hope that it trickles down and it becomes a, a part of the curriculum in middle school. That's the place to get going, right? Absolutely. Uh, great. And, you and, and, oh, and sorry, John just mentioned um, that there's a lot of good work being done under the banner of media literacy in this space, which is when you go online, how do you know if, if a given website is fake news or real news? Like teaching kids how to distinguish the one from the other is really important work. And that's very much well aligned with this mental immunity work that we do. And that is part of curriculum now. I don't know if it's curriculum, but they have to use it because, you know, people are just, it's not, you're not going into the stacks anymore. If anybody even knows what that means, <laughs> that's listening, <laughs> um, right? You are, you can find stuff, which is great because I can put the DOI number and get just what I need, right? Um, but you've got to make sure you're getting the reliable source. So the media literacy, I think, is part of school now. It just has to be part of everything. That's right. Um, and, and I think the, the, the gatekeepers of curricula everywhere need to rethink whether 99% of the time needs to be devoted to these traditional topics. I mean, do, which is more important for a kid, to learn media literacy or to learn uh, calculus? I mean, I don't want to diminish the value of calculus. It's a wonderful thing, but um, we need to find ways to bring active questioning into high school classrooms um, in, in all subjects. And, and I think, honestly, the, these techniques can be used in, in many different domains. You can teach literature and, and simultaneously teach the art of good critical thinking. You can teach history and teach the art of asking subtle questions. You can, uh, it, you can layer philosophy into um, any science class. Uh, in ways that are thought-provoking and that make the learning more engaging. So, I think that's going I, down the path of teach skills, not facts. Anything you can look up, you can look up. Teach reasoning, you know, yes. and evaluation. Well, let's let's hit some of those highlights from your conclusion, just so uh, we'll wrap it up there. So, get past the idea that you're entitled to your own opinions. Learn to unlearn. Admit that value judgments can be objectively true. Treat challenges as opportunities and join a community of inquiry rather than one of belief. All right. Thank I did. That, that's a lovely summary there. Thank you. Well, I wrote it down. So um, 
I did want to challenge you on some of your own stuff so we could play the challenge game, but we just don't have time for that. So I, I wanted to talk to you about the back. There's some things in your book, though, like the backfire effect, um, that I wanted to talk, challenge you on and play that game you have and see, well, why do you believe that? And how could I? But we'll save that for another time, maybe in person. That could be fun. Well, maybe to try that another day. That would be, that would be, I had to look forward to that. Okay. Once again, my guest has been Dr. Andy Norman. His book is Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better, a better Way to Think. And you can find more about him and his work at andynorman.org, correct? As well as cognitiveimmunology.net. Um, CIRCE is the project that evolved out of this work. And as you said, there's a lot of great resources there and also other people who's reading people might enjoy, like um, you just mentioned Melanie Teresa King. Um, and more of your writing is there as well. So, Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Um, that, that's a lovely, uh, you, you've, you've facilitated a wonderful overview of, of uh, these ideas I'm so passionate about, and it's a privilege to, to talk, discuss them with you. All right, great. Thank you. And I really appreciate your being here. I know it got kind of deep. <laughs> so, but there's a, like lot, there's a lot in the book. And again, consider condensing it down to 100 pages and getting it out there for a, you know, a high school freshman. What can I, we get, Melanie and I will work on that. We're, we're All right, great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. You're welcome.